Have you turned in your Bibles to the book of uh, Philippians is our text uh, this morning. We are going to continue in our series in the book of Philippians. Every knee will bow is the, the, the title of our series. Every knee will bow. That is something that we can look forward to. And we're going to unpack each week various elements of that truth of how every knee will bow, when every knee will bow, what it means that every knee will bow. But our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And this is the word of the Lord for his church gathered this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. (laughs) It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, I pray that you would come this morning and bless the preaching of your word and the reading of your word and cause it to have its effect that you designed for it to have in our hearts. Lord, we want to be faithful hearers and doers of your word as it has been written and read this morning. Lord, I pray for your help to be able to faithfully preach and apply it in a way that is faithful to how you intended it to be preached and applied. Lord, I need your help for that, and we need your help in this endeavor. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So I graduated from the University of Central Florida. Um, So the acronym UCF stands arguably for University of Central Florida. At least when I was there, we had other ideas of what UCF meant. I don't know if that's still true to this day, but we we said that it meant you can't finish. That was one of the things we, we said that it meant. Uh, they, they were also doing a lot of uh, you know, construction 
building during that time that I was there. And so we thought it meant under construction forever. Uh, what was another one? So somewhere either you can't finish or under construction forever. So I, I don't know if I've told all of you, I've probably told some of you the story of my graduation. And the story of my graduation, we, Rebecca and I were married already. I had one more class that I had to finish up, um, calculus three and differential equations. Um, whatever that means. I still don't know what that means. I, I took the class, still don't know what it means. And so I had to go back for a short summer term to finish up the degree. So we had already decided to move to Sarasota to do a, a an internship with a church there. So I had got a lease, put a deposit on the apartment that we were going to be renting. And as I was going through that, that short summer term, um, I had very little confidence that my grades were going to be uh, passing grades. So I was scoring in the, you know, 60s and studying very hard and uh, just had no confidence that I was going to be able to, to pass, you know, this class. And so I talked to everybody I could talk to. I explained my situation. I said, hey, can, is there any way that, uh, like, I've already, I'm already moving. I mean, I already said I'm moving. And so they're like, hey, if you just, you know, study hard, young man, you can, I'm like, you don't understand, I am studying hard. But the problem is that I, there, there's no amount of study that I could do, you know, to, uh, you know, to increase my grade uh, because of the subject matter of, of this class. So um, the, the, the short summer term, the, the final exam was on a Friday, the graduation was on a Saturday, Grades were posted on Monday, so <laughs> I wasn't even going to know what my grade was when I walked for my graduation. And, and so I remember distinctly being there at the graduation, worried about my grade, surrounded by all of these happy people. It, it was weird. Like there, everybody else there was happy. People were coming up to me saying, can you believe that we're graduating? And I was like, no. <laughs> Now, I believe that you're graduating. I don't necessarily think that I'm graduating. At least that's what I thought. I, I don't know if I actually said that. Um, but so they, they had us sitting in, in rows and they called us up. They released us rows, row by row. And so this was in the old UCF gym. It was basically a glorified version of this gym with bleachers up the side. And so we're walking around the back and I'm, I'm walking up towards the stage and I hear some commotion from the bleachers uh, up there. And I hear somebody calling my name as I'm walking up towards the stage. And I look up, and it's my professor. And, like, at that point, I don't know if I should, like, run away from him. Like, is he going to say, hey, no, this guy, this guy's not graduating. Hey, this guy's a fraud. Cancel all the, don't give him the diploma. Like, I don't know what to expect from this teacher that's going to come, you know. And so, and so he's, like, still 12 rows up in the bleachers. And he's like, he yells out. The whole section hears it. He's like, hey, man, it's good. You passed. You passed. <laughs> Give me two thumbs up. And like, I just stopped. I was stunned. So I stopped. The people in front of me kept walking. And like, people behind me are like pushing me. Like, hey, man, go. Go. So I kind of picked up the robe and like ran to catch back up with the people in front of me. And it was probably less than a minute later that I'm called across the, the stage uh, you know, shook the president's hand off on the other side and the wave of emotion that hit me at that point as I realized 
You can finish. Ha! That's what UCF means. I actually, I actually graduated. It was one of the most incredible experiences that I will never, never forget. Sorry, I'll give this to you. Now it's called YCF? <laughs> you, you can finish. Right, exactly. Look, the, the title of our message this morning is that God always finishes what he starts. There is no uncertainty about God's ability to finish something. There's a lot of uncertainty about our ability to finish things. But I think if, if the word of the Lord is true, and it is, there should be no uncertainty about God's ability to finish what he starts. And so I, I want this morning to kind of get into the head of Paul. Why is Paul so confident to be able to assert this? That God always finishes what he starts. Why is Paul so confident in this? It's a couple of things that Paul is very, very good at doing. One of the things that Paul is very good at doing is identifying and celebrating the various evidences of God's grace that he sees at work in people. There are specific justifications, specific things that Paul can point to, to justify this general sense of optimism that he feels about the Philippians despite the various difficulties and the circumstances that they, they face. So, so Paul's perspective comes from this idea that, that God had always been at work in them. This was not willful ignorance. Paul wasn't just trying to be positive and hoping that maybe a general sense of positivity or blind faith or hoping against hope uh, would prevail. No, his, his practice of encouragement contained specific observations of things that, that God was clearly doing in them. Details about their history, which uh, produced this sense of gratitude in his heart, which led to a, a meaningful communication to them that encouraged them based on how God was at work. So some of the specific things that he points out, they, they had cared for him in his moment of need. He, he calls them partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So later in the book, we learn that this gentleman named Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul, to minister to Paul in his need, he had brought a gift with him from the church at Philippi. Epaphroditus had become sick. They were worried about him. And so part of Paul sending this letter back to the church, he was sending it with Epaphroditus, with the good news that he was well. And with this expression of gratitude, Paul interpreted the gift that the people at the church in Philippi gave him as more more than just a good gesture, you know, just a nice thing to do. This was evidence of God's work in them. This was something that the generosity, the expression of generosity would have never been explainable by ordinary circumstances. 
God was at work and he was grateful for their partnership. This, this is what the gift represented, more, more than just a nice, you know, olive branch and overture. This was an expression of partnership in the gospel. So, so Paul, keep in mind, was, was imprisoned. It was probably like a, like a house arrest kind of situation where people were, he was under guard, but people were still able to come and, and visit him. And so that, that, that's the thing that would happen. As, as Paul was under house arrest, people would come and visit him. They, they'd meet with him. They'd pray together. They'd share what the Lord was doing. They would be encouraged and, and strengthened in their faith. And, and later Paul, you know, makes this statement that, you know, that, because of the things that were going on with him while he was in prison, it, it had become known through the entire Roman guard. The, the name of Jesus Christ was actually starting to be preached through the entire Roman guard as even the people that were watching over Paul were starting to see, uh, you know, why he was imprisoned and, and hear the name of Jesus Christ and, and the gospel going forward. And so even, even Paul's imprisonment, the church at Philippi was strategically part of that, you know, prison ministry. You, usually when you think of prison ministry, it's people going into prison to minister to the inmates. Well, Paul's prison ministry was he was the inmate you know, ministering to the guards, you know, and, and the gospel was spreading. And this was evidence of it made possible because of the partnership of the church at Philippi. And Paul was thanking them for that. He was also... Uh, another evidence of God's grace, he, he talked about their endurance, their faithfulness, their loyalty to him. He says the partnership in the gospel was from the first day until now. What, what seems to jump out in Paul's mind as he reflects on his gratitude for them is, is, is that they're still with him. Even though he's in prison, he's in jail, that, that was not a deterrence for them. They stayed with him. They didn't abandon him. They didn't desert him. Endurance and, and faithfulness and the loyalty of friends and partners in the gospel who will stick with you through difficult times. Isn't that a tremendous means of grace when there are people who will not only be with you during the good times, but also during the bad times as well? I'm belaboring this because this idea that Paul celebrates God's grace in specific areas of encouragement because we live in a, in a world of such negativity, don't we? We, we live in a world where there, there, there's a lot, if you're looking for things that are going wrong, it doesn't take long. There's a lot that's going wrong. There's a lot that's going wrong in the church, a lot that's going wrong in and around the church. But when we understand the gospel, we understand the mindset of Paul. We should have a disposition that's generally optimistic about our future. When we understand what the Lord has done, is doing, and is going to continue to do, it's an outlook that we as the body of Christ can be generally faith-filled and optimistic about what is coming. We are generally speaking going in the right direction with a lot to celebrate and be grateful for. Imagine a glass half filled with water. Or is it half empty? Right, that's the whole debate, right? Is the glass half empty 
or is it half full? How, how do you see that glass? This is the old, the, the age old question. How, how do you see that glass? JJ, is there anything in your bottle? Okay. That glass is not even half full. Okay. Not even half full. It's completely empty. You know, that, that's the age old question though. It, do you generally see people for the things that they still need to improve on? Or, or do you generally see people for the work that God is doing in them? That, that's, that's the question. They're, those are the two types of people in the world. The Philippians, there was a lot of half-empty things. You know, there's a lot of things that you would say, well, hey, this has gone poorly. You know, Paul was in jail. Paul was imprisoned. You know, they were being swarmed by corrupt, ill-motivated preachers. Uh, who are preaching the gospel with very impure and corrupt motives that Paul will address in this letter. You know, there was relational strife in, in the church that, that Paul was having to address. There was a lot of, a lot of things, you know, that you could say are, well, ways that the glass is still have empty. You know, but Paul starts to address those situations and he addresses each of those situations by, by saying, look, let, let's not get caught up in the details of what's going wrong, but let's focus on what God is doing in these situations. Let's focus on what God is doing, not what humans are doing in these situations to see where the Lord is at work. And that's how he's going to address these situations later in the book. And, and that's the foundation that he's laying right now in this first chapter when he states unequivocally that God will complete the work that he starts until that day when, as we will read, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so the problem with the glass half full, glass half empty debates is the implication that those are both equally valid perspectives. Typically, when we argue about whether it's half full, we argue under the assumption that, you know, you both, both ways of looking at it are equally valued. And there is, there's different types of people. When it comes to how we view the church, when it comes to how we view people, we have to keep in mind that our perspective should start with the fact that all of our glasses used to be completely empty. Much like JJ's glass right there. That, that's how we all are. <laughs> Without Christ, there is nothing in the glass. Without Christ, it is empty. There's no life. There's no hope. There's no future. That, that's how we all start. And were it not for the miracle of the grace of God, there would still be nothing in the glass. And so if we're going to change the analogy uh, this morning, uh, imagine, imagine if you're dying of thirst in the desert... And, and you see a glass that's half filled with water. Imagine your perspective then. You're, you're not at that point disappointed that it's only half filled. No, you're, you're, your eyes go to the water. That, that's the life for you and the miracle of that provision. Look, the, the imperfections and, and room that we all still have to grow in the Lord should not distract us away from the, the miracle that it is that God's grace is at work in us. The, the absence of God's grace is completely unsurprising in certain areas when you consider who we all were before Christ. 
It's the miracle of God's grace that Paul is celebrating here. And this is a sign of, of, of what I believe is, is Paul's spiritual maturity. Well, what does it say about love? Love keeps what? No record of wrongs. Right? That, that's love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, spiritual maturity has, has a selective memory. You know, for, and look, it's not overlooking problems. Paul's going to address these problems. But, but Paul's selective memory is actually how he's preparing them to navigate the challenges that they're facing. Because at the root of all of their discouragements and the struggles was, in, in Paul's mind, they were focusing too much on the humans at involved in these situations, and they were not focusing enough on identifying where God was at work in those situations. And Paul countered that by becoming quick to point out those evidences of his grace at work in them and celebrating the evidences of God's grace at work in the church. And that is a perspective of spiritual maturity in and how Paul equips them to navigate the various challenges that they are facing. And so this, this skill that Paul had in navigating, or sorry, identifying evidences of grace in people led him somewhere. It, it led him to a, a confident expectation that God would continue to be at work in them. His identification of the ways that God was at work in them and had been created an expectation that God would continue in the future to be at work and, he, and, and building on what he had started. And, and so this is where the, the specific application of, of, of optimism about our future outlook comes in. As, as much as Paul was encouraged by what had happened in their past, Oh, that, that pales in comparison with his faith for what was in their future. And this is what caused Paul to write what I believe is one of the most hope-birthing, a confidence-inducing, courage-inspiring, life-sustaining weapons to combat disillusionment and discouragement that exists anywhere in the Bible when he says unequivocally, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Can you identify with the struggle to believe the lies that the devil likes to tell about Christians, about the church, about you? Some of those lies. What are some of those lies? Oh, the church has completely lost its way and is totally irrelevant. Church is nothing more than a bunch of hypocrites with nothing but self-aggrandizing things to say. Maybe lies about you. I've heard some of these lies. Things that you've done have kind of forfeited God's best plan for you. Mistakes that you've made. Weaknesses, sins, whatever it is. Have, have you believed a lie that you've somehow forfeited and, and, and messed up your life too much. That somehow because of the, the things you've done, that the, the, you're just kind of grappling with, with whatever's left. You know, maybe, maybe God had some plans for me, but I mean, obviously at this point, that's not in the question. That's not possible. Here we are as, as those God has called to be holy, 
saints of the Lord. Questioning. Because of the lies that we're believing, questioning the, the power of the one who made us holy. Wrestling with discouragement. Wrestling with despair over our own sin or other people's sin. Look, nothing is more instructive and encouraging than this promise of God's word that God always finishes what he starts. Think of the think of the implications of that. Think of the implications that that God will always finish the good work that he starts, that there is nothing that we can do and there's nothing that can be done to us that could ever become too much of an obstacle that God, for some reason, can't finish what he starts. That I, I, I tend to think sometimes that, yeah, no, God started something and started out with good intentions, but at some point along the way, things got really messed up and now that's too much of an obstacle to be completed. So God's had to change his plan, mid-course adjustment. Do you think God makes mid-course adjustments? Do you think God ever has to make a mid-course adjustment? Does he ever have to say, well, um, you know, I had that in mind. I mean, I'll, I'll still do this other kind of good thing. It may not be the good thing that could have been done had you not messed that up, but I'll just do this other good thing. Has God ever said that? Has God ever been thwarted in accomplishing exactly the very thing that he intended to accomplish from the beginning? No, it's never happened. He will always finish the work that he began, the work that he intended to complete when he started the work. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. I mean, we're, we're singing these truths that celebrate that he will never be thwarted in his plans. He will never be unable to complete something that he started. Think of how... Silly it is to think that the God of the universe who spoke this universe into existence with his words would somehow be thwarted by you or I. This is not the God that Paul is talking about. This is not God as he exists. He will complete the good work that he started. Why? Because first, it was all his idea. This passage and this, there's some truth packed into this promise here. We see that it's God's initiative in the first place. God's initiative in regenerating us. It's He who began this good work. And, and it is a good work. What is that good work? Well, that good work was to take us who were dead in our sins and make us alive in Christ. That's the good work that began. And that good work wasn't based on anything in us. So if you think that you can derail his plan now that you've been made spiritually alive, consider the fact that it was not a derailment of his plan for you to be dead in your sins. Even that was not too much for him to overcome. So how is something you do while you're alive in Christ too much of a deterrent to, deterrent to accomplish his plans? This is all his initiative. And he began this good work of taking people who were dead in our sins, making us alive in Christ. We had nothing to do with that work beginning. It was all of grace and entirely of God's choosing in its beginning and also in its continuation. 
It's also not only God's power to regenerate us, it's God's power to preserve us. It was he who began the good work, and it says it is he who will carry it into completion. Galatians 3.3 says this, and and Paul addresses what I'm talking about even more specifically in Galatians 3.3 when he says, hey guys, you know, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? It's that idea that, okay, we have this mindset that, Lord, it was so good of you to, to kind of make me alive. But I've got it. I've got it from here. I'll do it from here. That, that's the mindset that we have. Oh, of course we're appreciative that God saved us. Of course we're appreciative that he made us alive in Christ. And now we get to finish the work. No. No, it is not us who... We, we are not perfected by the flesh. It is God who began the good work, and it is He who completes the good work. Look, we cooperate with Him. Philippians 2 will talk about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. And so if we are worried that somehow we will derail that plan, consider that from the beginning to the end, it is all by the grace and power of God. What else did we sing this morning? It's more than I can do to keep my hold on you. But all my hope and peace is that you cling to me. That is our hope and expectation that he who began the good work is the one who will preserve us through the end. Because this is this is God's design for our sanctification is that it is a progressive thing. It says he will bring the work to completion. This is a future thing that he is talking about. God's design for sanctification is that it's, it's a project done in phases. It's not something that's completed overnight. As a Christian, you're, you're much more like a, a tree than a kitchen remodel. So like a kitchen remodel, I mean, it's pretty much it, a few weeks, a few months, maybe you get in, it's done, right? And it wouldn't be great if God would just treat our sanctification that way. Like he saves us and obviously there's like a big remodel, but you know, pretty much the remodel's done within, you know, months or so. No, we're, we're, we're not like a kitchen remodel. We're, we're, we're like a, a tree. Spiritual growth happens sometimes over decades. We just planted a tree in our front yard. Like, it's not going to be the tree that it's going to become probably till, like, my, I have grandkids that are, like, that. it's decades down the road before that tree becomes what it was intended to be. And, and, and God has, for some reason, existing outside of time, he, he's not as hurried as I can be to do things on my time frame. I mean, God works in decades you know, God works in long-term projects, and this is, this is how he always designed sanctification. This is the work that he began. And my, my perspective, when, when I look at things that happened 20 years ago, I think it's much closer to God's perspective than, than how I evaluate the things that happened yesterday. And so the things that I'm looking for answers for 
I may not have for another 20 years the full answer. I may not have until eternity the full explanation and perspective of God on why those things happen or why he did things certain ways. And ultimately, this this reality is meant to draw our minds towards this day that he says, the day of Christ Jesus, that that final day when when after this world passes away, we we experience eternal life in that new heavens and new earth. It really will be in that day that we fully understand and see the completion of his work. And this is the promise for us that God will in the day of Christ Jesus complete the work that he began. This is our confidence that nothing can deter that work from being completed. One commentator said this, nothing in life or death will prevent the successful completion of God's good work in every Christian. Do you believe that statement? That nothing will complete God's good work in every Christian. This is the challenge of the Word of God for our faith this morning. That we would believe that God would not leave any project abandoned. This is the perspective that although the glass is half empty, half full, it will one day be overflowing to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. As we read, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord and that we enter into that eternal exercise of praise of him in heaven, in sinless perfection, celebrating the completion of his work in us. This is our expectation based on the grace of God as it has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul, in addition to identifying specific evidences of grace and the confident expectation that he had, there's also a prayer that he prays in this passage or a prayer that he alludes that he has been praying relating to how spiritual progress looks. What does it look like to progress in the faith? And and I'm drawing from verses 9 through 11 and, and some things that facilitate, not facilitate, um, constitute, I should say, uh, Paul's prayer for them. This is not an exhaustive list of spiritual progress, but, but our progress in the faith includes at least these things. He talks about love. He talks about knowledge and discernment. And then he talks about character and integrity. And this idea of, of love, Paul's prayer for them is that their love would abound more and more. It was obvious to Paul that they loved each other. But Paul wasn't content with the current expressions of their love for each other. We, we referenced love earlier as the fruit of the Spirit, which keeps no record of wrongs. This is the, the motivation behind our selective memories, focusing on God's grace in people. And, and, and progress in the faith results in, in this love abounding more and more. 
this increasingly abounding love, this exceeding and growing love that, that Paul says. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul, somehow in his encouragement to the church, manages to, to point out the grace of God in them without puffing them up. As if there was not room for, for more growth in them. But that, that's what biblical encouragement does, by the way. B- biblical encouragement never results in complacency, but, but actually ignites a desire for more of the thing that's being encouraged. And so Paul celebrated their love for each other, even as he prayed that that love would grow and abound more and more. And as a result of that, he said what he also would would love to to see abounding more and more is what he calls knowledge and all discernment. Another element of their spiritual progress is is what he calls knowledge and discernment. And and we generally put this into the category of of growing in wisdom. You know, any parent who uh, walks through the experience of seeing your children make that transition from childhood to uh, adulthood, understands the, the uncertainty uh, of that transition and, and the questions of, are, are these young and maturing minds going to process things in, in a way that would be described as, as wise? And, and this is kind of Paul's concern for the church as as he's you know over the course of his life becoming more advanced in years and, and now constrained physically by his imprisonment unable to be there with them and handle different situations i mean at some point they're going to need to be quote on their own from him and his prayer is that they would not be on their own from the word that he has been preaching but that they would continue to to grow in their knowledge and and not be content with what they have, but voraciously seeking a continued understanding of, of God and His Word, that they would grow in discernment. What's, what's discernment? D- discernment's the ability to, to approve, it says, what is excellent. And, and, and approve what is right. Knowing, knowing right from wrong is the idea there. And, and valuing and pursuing what is right. And being able to see through the lies and, and distortion of the truth that we find in this world. Well, one of the temptations for me as I grow older is to lose sight of Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. To, to lose that desire for learning, that desire for growing in knowledge and discernment. The Proverbs says, trust in the Lord, lean not on your own understanding. In, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. One of the ways that the decade of the 40s for me is different than the decade of the 20s is the temptation I face to consider myself to be pretty wise. Do you think of yourself as pretty wise? I'm seeing some heads nodding in the back. Look, I mean, I'm, have you ever just thought, you know, look, I, I've learned a few things. I mean, come on, give me, give me some credit, guys. Give me some credit. Do you consider yourself that way? Hopefully, 
the older that we get, the more we realize how unwise we really are and how we need to maintain that voracious desire for increasing knowledge and discernment and wisdom and, as it says here, approving what is excellent, leaning not on our own understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledging our dependence on the Lord and and crying out to God. If any man lacks wisdom, Scripture said, let him ask God and God will give it. That, That should always be our disposition, not to rest not to be complacent with it where we are, but, but constantly seeking more of the eternal wisdom that God can give in abundance if we have the humility to just ask Him for it. And, and the result of all of this is, as Paul says, that, that, that growing in our love and knowledge and discernment and, and what is, is right is that our lives are produced, uh, sorry, described by word, Holiness. We could use the word integrity. There's different words. Paul, Paul says here that we will be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer for their spiritual progress. He was praying that certainly there was a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But his prayer for them is that that day would not be the first day that their knees were bowing and their tongues were confessing that Jesus is Lord, that that would start now. We can make spiritual progress examining ourselves and seeing if there is any any element of our life that is not surrendered to the Lord. As as David prays, Lord, see if there's any unclean way in me in the psalm. See if there's any element of my life that is not surrendered to God. There's any room for for growth in being filled, as it says, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the question that this passage calls us to ask ourselves is, is my life surrendered to the Lord? Is my life filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ? Or are there still some ways where, where my, my knees still need to be bowed in, in a greater, in a greater way in that area? This is the, the question that a spiritually mature person will will ask. This is the question that Scripture is calling us to ask this morning. Two two categories that are being mentioned here as we transition to a close. The category of being encouraged that God will complete the work. And then the category of cooperating with that work of the Lord as he is completing it. We're going to see this over and over throughout the book. Where, where are you this morning in those two categories? Do you sense a need for encouragement that God is going to complete that Work. Maybe there's elements of that work as it exists in, in your life where 
it's just a struggle of faith to believe that. It's just a struggle of faith to believe that, that God hasn't somehow had his good work derailed beyond what he wanted it to be or you would like it to be or you know, somewhere in that discussion, a, a real battle for faith that, that this is true, that, that he really is going to complete and, and you and others, maybe, maybe you think about other people. And, and you wonder, Lord, are you going to complete the good work in them? Maybe, it, we're, maybe there's folks that, that you've been praying for, that you've interacted with, just desiring the Lord, oh God, come and, come and do a work in them. Would you do that? Or, or maybe with your circumstances and heart this morning, maybe the Lord wants to identify in you some of those areas that... He wants to identify for some progress in spiritual growth and doing a work in you and your walk with him now and this morning and starting this morning. And he's identifying some of those areas where maybe maybe my knee is not bowed to him in that aspect of life. Well, what are some of those areas where you would say, yeah, I, I am leaning on my own understanding there. I, I, I am not doing things with all knowledge and discernment, but I'm doing things with all of my wisdom and experience and just general sense of, of what I want to do. I'm not approving what is excellent. I'm approving of what I think about this or that. Where, where, where in this is your heart this morning? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to sing a song of dependence on the Lord. We're going to sing once again that it is more than I can do to keep my hold on you. This, this song, Cling to Christ, is an expression of the kind of dependence on him that we are called to here in this letter, in this opening chapter of Philippians. We are called to depend on God to complete what he started. We're called to depend on God to define for us what that looks like and identify those areas where our love for him needs to abound more and more.